We're going to be in John chapter 3, a couple verses, a couple familiar verses there. We'll read together in, in just a minute. Let's pray. Let's pray and ask for the reading, the preaching, the hearing, the receiving, the application of, of God's word, because that is all uh, something that the Spirit of God needs to help us with. And so, Father, we do. We stop and pray and ask for your help today as we open up the scriptures, as I come forward to preach from your word. We're here to hear and receive, to listen, uh, and for that work of your spirit, to sow that seed into our hearts. In particular today, I pray that you would open wide our hearts to see again, maybe for some for the first time, how great your love is for us. If we could see that, if we could see it even in part, would change us, and the world would change. I pray that that be so in Jesus' name. Amen. It's amazing how the one, the one person who loves perfectly, always, would have been so despised and so rejected. That someone that is so committed to the truth, that always speaks the truth, has never spoken a lie, could be so doubted, even not believed. Amazing that someone who is so essential to our very existence could be so ignored and thought of as irrelevant. Amazing that someone so generous could be thought of as demanding taking, exacting, that someone who has done so much for the good of others but has been so little appreciated, I'm talking about God himself, as all those things has done all those things and yet no one has had so much negative response. Our Advent topic this afternoon is the love of God. One aspect, a major aspect of who God is that describes him, that has the most profound effect on us, on you, on me, on the world. How we, how we understand and how we think about the love of God determines much, so much about the state of our hearts and how we live our lives. I'm not talking about a, a shallow, presumptive, oh yes, I know God loves me, God loves everybody, God is love. I'm, I'm talking about something much deeper than that. Something that if you have just a little glimpse of the holiness of God, if you have a little bit of insight into the unholiness of ourselves and our own hearts, in fact, to whatever extent you and I can see the holiness of God and to whatever extent you, can I, you and I can comprehend the unholiness of our own hearts, that's the groundwork and that's the place 
where the love of God begins to be amazing and powerful. We're not assuming that it's just there. Not presuming it's just always available, always there. We're just readily acknowledging, wow, he's holy and we are not. And yet, he loves us. To know not just that God is love or that God loves, but specifically for you, for me, to know that God loves you. For me to know that God loves me. Not sitting here with, oh yes, I'm comfortable and confident that God loves her and God loves him and God loves them. And when we think about the holiness of God and we think about our own failures, our own weaknesses, the reality of our own hearts, could we, could we actually dare to think and actually believe that this God would love us? And yet when we do, when that truth, that reality begins to genuinely land on our soul, that is how hard hearts melt. And that is how lives are transformed. Jonathan Edwards wrote, There's such love and such grace in the heart of God that if you understood the length and breadth and height and depth of it, you would never be discouraged. I read that I thought, can you imagine never being discouraged? If you could comprehend something of the love of God for you, something of its height, its breadth, its width, its length, if you could comprehend it, really comprehend it, you would never be discouraged, ever, about anything. What a wonderful place to be. Our text this afternoon is very familiar. We could probably almost recite it together. John chapter 3, verses 16 and verses 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I want to spend our time in God's word this afternoon talking about, thinking about the love of God. To hear what the scriptures have to say about God's love for us. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we're praying, have been praying, that each one of us would grasp in a fresh way this love that God has for us that moves us closer and closer to, as Edwards would say, never being discouraged, confident in the love of God.
What is God's love? Let's define, let's try and define what, what is God's love. Well, love defined in our normal conversation is really love has become one of the most malleable words that we use. I mean, we use it for all kinds of things. We use it for food and, and, and games and lifelong spouses and lifelong friendships. I mean, everything from the smallest to the greatest, this word finds a home, finds its use. It can really be reduced to express virtually anything we feel positively about. We could say, I, I, I love that. I love cheesecake, and I love my wife, and, and it's all good, and anything that evokes some kind of positive sentiment, the word is useful for. But what I wanted to do is spend some time not just thinking about our love first and foremost, but thinking about God's love, looking at his love and trying to understand that. When Jonathan Edwards spoke about, wrote about the love of God, what he did was he started with the Trinity. He started with the Godhead and built a sort of a source and a foundation of love, saying that the logic is that Scripture is saying God is love, that in order for God to love or be love and to be in existence before he created anything, that there must have been a Godhead. Three persons of this trinity where this love could be expressed and lived out and, and walked out. There needed to be recipients. And so the Bible talks about the love between the Father and the Son. And when Edwards writes this, he has in mind, this is a quote from Dane Ortland, who wrote a wonderful little book uh, called Jonathan Edwards on the Christian Life. And so he's studying all the works of Jonathan Edwards and putting it into this wonderful little book. It was very helpful. And he says, Edwards has in mind a, a holy energy of mutual delight exercised within the Godhead himself. The Father and the Son rejoicing in and spotlighting one another with a delight, the energy of which is the Holy Spirit. This is the love of God, he says. When Dane Ortland goes on to dissect and analyze Edwards' writing about this, he notes that Edwards talks about love in two different categories, a benevolence and a complacence, words that we don't use very often these days. So outdated terms, but what they're talking about is a, is a, a benevolent love of God is talking about delighting in the welfare of another, a benevolent love toward another, but a complacent love is talking in terms of just simply delighting in another. So it's like two kinds. In one sense, I love you in the sense I want good for you. I, I want your well-being, your good welfare. And that is a, a, an aspect of the, of the love. But then there's another aspect of love that is just complacent. It's just, I just love you because I love you. Because it's there. Because that, that love exists. And it's, it's regardless of what is done or what is received. It's just there. Now, the love of God throughout the Bible is really multifaceted, and there's another wonderful book I'm going to be recommending adding to your book list in this sermon. D.A. Carson wrote a wonderful little book, a couple of them, actually. The first one is The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. 
and he's trying to step into our culture's broad use of the word love and especially how we use it in terms of God and really doing a scriptural analysis of how does the Bible speak about the love of God. And he breaks down sort of five ways that the Bible talks about God's love. And it talks about, first, the love of the Father for the Son and of the Son for the Father. There's a a dominant way that the Bible speaks about God's love. John 3, 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And then in John 14, 31, Jesus talking, but as, as I, do, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. And this, again, is where Edwards is talking about sort of the fountainhead of love coming from within God himself, within the Godhead, is like the starting point of love. That's where love sort of exists and works out from there. Even then the logic is that God, that love within the Godhead expanded into creation. So theologically, it's important not to be thinking in terms of a lonely God who has no one to love and doesn't know what to do with themselves and decides, well, let me create a world, let me create a, a, a universe. And now all of a sudden sort of love comes into existence because he's created objects of his love. That would be theologically wrong. The love existed in the Godhead. And that love expands out and provokes the creation where the love of God extends. So then the second, Carson lists, the God's providential love for the universe God created the universe, created it all, and it is good. He declares it good, and that goodness did not cease in the fall, in the, in the, in the corruption of sin that come into it. It didn't take away all the goodness. There's still a good universe that God created that he expresses love towards. In Jesus' teaching, he makes these statements like, he makes, God makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, he's saying just because the world is fallen doesn't mean it is no longer under this providential love of God. It goes on to challenge us, saying that if we love people only who love us back, what reward is there? In other words, loving someone who doesn't love you back, it has its reward, and you love someone that doesn't love you back because of this kind of love. You love because God created it. It is good. This love of humanity, love of the universe. God made it. It is good. And God has a love for it. Thirdly, Carson talks about God's yearning, inviting, seeking, saving love. This is really our text for this afternoon, John 3, 16. Describing God's love for the world in order to save it. Ezekiel 33, 11 is another wonderful verse. Listen to God speaking through the prophet here. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? You hear God's love, his pleading, why would you die? I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I experienced this morning, so we had early Christmas this morning because our family's going different ways. So this morning, Opa, that's me, made Christmas breakfast, and we're sitting around, a couple grandkids around the table, 
but one grandchild was not inclined to eat his breakfast. And his mom made the statement, if you don't eat your breakfast, you cannot open presents. He was not budging. And so I sat there and said, oh, Israel, why will you die? Eat the breakfast. Don't be miserable. Don't ruin the day. Don't ruin your day. Don't spoil Christmas. Why would you do this? Simply eat. Just eat half of it. Take a few bites. You can do this. Don't die. Don't suffer the wrath of mom and spoil Christmas. God has that kind of love for the world that he created. A, a pleading, inviting, a universal appeal for the grace of God. Next, Carson points out God's choosing, electing love. This is God setting particular affection on the people, like the people of Israel in the Old Testament, like the church in the New Testament. Not because they or we are greater or stronger or better or impressive in any way. When the Bible speaks about this uh, electing love, it is just often refers back to before the foundations of the world it refers back to situations where there was no uh, good or bad reason to love this person it is it is trying to make the point the scripture is trying to direct us that it is something that simply resides in the heart of god like that complacent love i was referring to earlier just love you because i do a marriage, for better, for worse. Like, it doesn't matter if things go well or things go bad. It's just, it is what it is. The love is there. And, then, and so the scriptures talk about God's choosing, electing love. It's that kind of love. That's, that's why we make vows at weddings. That's why the, the scriptures elevate marriage because we 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 long for that and we're and we're trying to display that now no marriage does it perfectly and it's humanly speaking it's often a problem but that is sort of the the aim of what it's after what we're designing what we're what god has designed marriage to try to emulate and picture and display is this a i i vow myself to you no matter what for better or for worse Lastly, fifth category, Carson talks about God's conditional love. This kind of, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. In Jude, verse 21, Jude writes, keep yourselves in the love of God. So he's talking about it in a, in a certain way. So a little boy at the breakfast table was not in the love of his mother at that moment, not in that aspect of her love, but did she love him? Absolutely. We all do. It's not outside of her love. But there was a conditional moment right there that was being worked out. Now, when Dia Carson writes all this, he, he wraps it up with a kind of warning. He said, look, don't, don't think about God having five different kinds of loves. 
don't try to separate out and dissect these like there's these different kinds of loves that he has. It's just think more in terms of these are five ways that the Bible talks about and expresses the love of God. It is one God. He has a heart filled with all of love. He himself is love. And that love finds its expressions in a variety of ways depending on the context, depending on the situation. Not so hard to understand because we all live in that reality. We all love things differently depending, but it's still you love many things. It's still all you. It's your heart. But whether you're at Cheesecake Factory or on your wedding day or whatever the case, you, that love that resides in your heart is just finding expression in a variety of ways. Second point, how has God's love been given? How has God's love been expressed to us? And Two points here, and the first one under this heading is in the law of God. It might surprise you. I wanted to include this and say that God's love is expressed and brought to us in and through the law. I wanted to include this point because it's in the law of God that we often misunderstand and in some ways accuse God of being unloving. If you have a rebellious heart, being told what to do always rubs you the wrong way. Nobody can tell me what to do. Even if you tell me something good or something I want to do, it just bothers me that you're telling me to do it. That's the response of a rebellious heart. And so the law of God is often misunderstood as it lands on rebellious hearts. But Here's something. Let me read to you a verse out of Deuteronomy chapter 5 and see if you can hear God's heart in it. Now, this is after. Deuteronomy chapter 5 is one of the places where the Ten Commandments are listed. And after Moses tells the people the Ten Commandments that God has given him, the people respond with great affirmation. Oh, yes, we'll do it. We're, we're all in. And so after this affirmation of the people responding to the Ten Commandments, Verse 29, this is God speaking. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. I almost preached this whole sermon on the word oh. Oh, oh, if only. Oh, if only. If only they would. If only this was truly in their heart. Oh, they're, with their mouths they're telling me they affirm all these. They are professing commitments to obey all these commands. Oh, if only. And do you hear his reasoning? If only they were truly committed to this so that life would go well. In other words, now you, you begin to hear God's heart, his intent. As if he's saying to all of us, look, friends, I created the world and this is how the world functions the way it's supposed to be. Based on these commands. These commandments are expressions of God's desire for things to be as they were meant to be. A life lived in the love of God and in the love of for one another. 
Let's just do a quick cursory overview of these Ten Commandments in that light. Oh, I've made you my treasured possession, so now you shall have no other gods before you. I've become your God. You make me your God. My affection is all yours, so now give me all your worship. I've called you by name. I've given you my name. So don't use my name in vain. I've spoken words of life over you. So when you take my name on your lips, do it with reverence, as it should be. Keep the Sabbath. I, I worked, and then I rested. I worked to create the universe and you. And then I rested to enjoy what I've created. Now you keep time set aside to rest and enjoy what I've done for you. Don't get so busy. Make sure you rest and acknowledge and enjoy. We're going to have time just to be together. Honor your father and mother. I've been a father and a mother to you and deserve that honor from you. So now keep your households like that. Where proper honor from the children is given to the parents. No adultery. I've taken you as my bride. Singularly so now keep your marriages with devotion and faithfulness. Reflect this. Reflect what I've done. Reflect my commitment to you and your commitments as husbands and wives. No stealing. I've provided for you in abundance. I've cared for you. I've watched over every one of your needs. I've made sure you lacked nothing. So be respectful of other people's property. You don't need to take what belongs to someone else. I'm your provision. I'm your provider. No false witness I've been truthful to you. I've always spoke the truth to you. So now you do not bear false witness against one another. You too speak the truth as I have always spoken the truth. And do not covet. I've given you myself, supplied all your needs. You do not need to crave and covet what your neighbor has. Or as my grandson recently Clarified for me, do not cover your neighbor's cow. Because covering cows is against the law. Out of God's love for his people, saying, people, this is how life works. This is how I've made the world to work. You knowing, worshiping me, us in communion, resting together. You people amongst yourselves, loving, caring for one another, respectful of one another, committed, devoted, all properly done. This is how life goes well. Oh, that this was in your hearts to do. Where he commands is a path of life. Where we refuse to obey is a path of death. God's love is expressed in the giving of the law. 
Secondly, God's love is expressed in the giving of his son. This is the great message. This is our Christmas message. This is the main thing. This is our text. This is the greatest expression of God's love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That statement is designed to bring through the intensity of his love and the greatness of the gift so that together we could comprehend the greatness of the Father's love for us. He loved us so much that he would give his only son to us. That, against the backdrop of what we've been talking about, the source of love, the love of the Father toward the Son and the Son towards the Father, how they would delight in one another. And now he's giving him up because he so loves us. Hard to comprehend. We should simply be amazed at the concept it's hard to comprehend an earthly father giving up his son, an earthly mother giving up her son or daughter. It's hard to comprehend. And we're lost and flawed, and, and yet this is what the father does because he has such love for the world that was that great to will the suffering of his only son that the world might be saved through him. The world speaks to both the breadth of his love. Statement Jesus makes in the context of Jewish society, very common for the Jews to be thinking, well, I understand God's love for us, don't understand God's love for them. And here Jesus drops into that context and talks about God's love for the world. So now all of a sudden the breadth of God's love is getting expanded. But also, in particular in the Gospel of John, that word, world, cosmos, is most often referring to the badness of the world. So also getting in this, not just the breadth and the expansion of his love, but we're getting a, a, a sense of the depth of his love. In other words, what, one of the aspects of what Jesus is saying is God so loved the world as bad as it is, as corrupt as it is, as needy as it is, as lost as it is. That's how great the love of the Father is, to go down to that depth. The Scriptures, God, the Spirit, wants us to see the greater and trust Him with the lesser. He wants us to see that the greatest expression of God's love towards us is in the giving of His Son for us that we might be saved. Many of us have gotten trapped in trying to reverse this logic. If God loves me, 
then he would do this. You remember me mentioning an old book with the title, If, if God Loves Me, Then Why Can't I Get My Locker Open? Which is the logic that's saying, you know, if God really loved me, this problem would be fixed. This situation in my life would be done. That's how I comprehend the love of God. If I could just get that job or find that friend or get married or have children or have better children or something, if something in my life could change for the better because that's what's on my mind right now, that's my immediate felt need, if God were to do that, then I would very much be convinced that He loves me. And then I could trust Him to forgive my sins through Christ. And we're reversing the logic that God is giving to us. He wants us to realize and comprehend what I've done for you is the greatest. And I want that greatest to assure you that my heart is glad to give you the kingdom and to add all things to your life. I want you to understand my heart by seeing that I've given the greatest gift. I've made the greatest sacrifice. I've given you my most treasured beloved son and called him to lay down his life for you i couldn't have given you more i could not have made any more greater sacrifice there's no greater gift of love than for me to call my son my beloved son who i delight in to lay down his life for you and i want you to realize the greatness of that gift the depth of my love for him, and see that as an expression of my love for you. And from that, be so confident and so restful and so assured that I've got your back. I know what's going on. I see what you need. I'm very aware. If God did the greatest, surely his heart is for the lesser. And then we can trust him with the delays, with the answers we weren't quite expecting, with things not working out quite, because how else would we trust him? Otherwise, we would be stuck. Only if God does it my way will I know that he loves me. False. Because he's given his son, you know that he loves you. Trust can follow because a love that is willing to give the greatest gift is the greatest love and that's what we're meant to see at Christmas the greatest gift was given so that we can know the greatest love the love of God who gave himself who gave his son for us last point shorter point the power of his love in us divine love expressed to us is the source and the root of a new life you might be familiar with john chapter 3 jesus makes this statement at the conclusion of a conversation with a man named nicodemus who comes to jesus and is inquiring jesus help me understand this aspect and jesus kind of inserts Nicodemus, you have to be born again if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a little bit of a disjointed conversation. Jesus like 
puts this in, knows what's going on in this man's heart. And it is obviously a very confusing statement to Nicodemus. What do you mean, born again? I don't get it. I don't get the concept. What could you possibly mean by saying, I have to be born again? And then Jesus goes on pressing this point. And he's drawing attention to himself. He makes a statement, just like when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And everyone who looked at this serpent, this golden serpent up on a pole, was saved from the fiery serpents that were destroying the people. So the Son of Man, Jesus is saying, just like that, I'm going to be lifted up. And everyone who looks in faith to me is going to be rescued, is going to be saved. And I want you to know, all this is happening because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever would look upon him, whoever would put their faith, their hope, their trust, their confidence in him, would not perish, but would live forever. It's the love of God that provided us a way to enter into God's kingdom. To come under his actual willing rule where we are acknowledging it. God rules over all things. But when we step in with, with a willing heart and saying, I'm surrendered and I enjoy being under your reign, we are in his kingdom. That work of the Spirit becomes the source for our love for one another. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Next chapter, this is 1 John chapter 4. We love because he first loved us. Now, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's, he's a liar. He doesn't get it. That's, that can't be true. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. What the scriptures is saying is when you come into the love of God, when you understand and receive and understand, uh, know what's going on in this awareness of, oh, the love of the Father is so great for me. That is so transforming that now you begin to look to the people around you and now that love is functioning in you. You've been the recipient of it and it is now driving you. It is now moderating you. And when you, when you look to your neighbor, now you look with a new set of eyes because you've been the recipient of this great love. And when that happens and we walk out and you folks are doing this so much, so well, and in so many ways, walking out this love for one another, that, that, those actions, those expressions of love become the evidence that you do in fact know the love of the Father. That's the proof. That's the witness. You begin to reflect the very thing that you and I have received. You begin expressing it to one another. And now it becomes evident. Now it's visible for the world to see. 
Now it becomes true. Now it's not just your profession. It's not just you claiming to know that God loves you. Now it begins to be a visible activity in your life because you are, in some sense or another, laying down your life for others. Down to the details. Not willing to gossip about. Not willing to malign another's reputation. Always speaking the truth to one another. Always looking to care for genuine interest. What are your needs? How can I serve? What can we do? How can we maintain unity here? How can we grow together? How can we serve you? How can we? All these thousand different expressions of love come from this one source the love of God, planted, if you will, in our very hearts. All this finds its source and its replenishing strength in the love of God. My prayer was, oh, that, that we could comprehend just a little bit more together this afternoon of the love of God. Worship team, you can come on up. In, in, in conclusion, I wanted to borrow something from Kent Hughes. He's a retired pastor in Wheaton, Illinois. He's written many books and many commentaries. And in it, he's taken this, in one, he's taken this verse and he's broken it down word by word and drawn attention to how every word of John 3.16 shows greatness. Here's how he did it. God, the greatest lover, so loved to the greatest degree. The world, the greatest company, that he gave the greatest act his only son, the greatest gift. That whoever, the greatest opportunity, believes the greatest simplicity in him, the greatest attraction, shall not perish the greatest promise. But the greatest difference, have the greatest security, eternal life, the greatest possession. Every word, everything about this verse, about the love of God, is wanting to drive home into our souls how great it is. So that if you and I could comprehend just something of the greatness of the love of God for us. Maybe the words of Jonathan Edwards would be true and we would never, ever be discouraged. Let's stand together. Father, do it for your glory. Reveal to us, make it known to us. May the words of the scriptures and the words that I've spoken, Lord, resonate in hearts to see the greatness of your love. Let it not be something we presume upon, but comprehend.
and appreciate and enjoy and live out the good of for your glory. Amen.